So we've got the place surrounded. I am talking to him on the phone. It's probably now four o'clock in the morning. I, I, I think he was just exhausted. He was just tired. And, you know, we, we had developed a good relationship. And I said, you know, why don't you just put the gun down and come out? I said, look, I'll come down to the scene. We'll talk face to face. We'll get this resolved. Everything's going to be okay. Yeah, I'd like to do that. I'd really like to do that. I said, well, then put the gun down. I said, bring the phone with you, but put the gun down. I said, don't hang up the phone. Okay, well, what's he do? He hangs up the phone. Welcome to the Curiosity Shire, where we share stories which will educate, inspire, and challenge you. My name is Seth, and I'll be your host during today's episode. I bring my sense of adventure and endless curiosity into each conversation as I learn more about the incredible world we live in and the inspirational people that we share it with. Terry Tucker worked as a hostage negotiator on a SWAT team for the Cincinnati Police Department. As a hostage negotiator, Terry's job was to talk with people in critical situations as they pointed a gun at themselves or somebody else, trying to defuse the situation and keep everyone safe. During our conversation, Terry shares some unique experiences he had while on the police force and how his life experience prior helped in his interactions with citizens. He also shares things he's learned in regards to interacting with others in stressful situations and how that correlates to everyday life. Through his experience as a hostage negotiator and then during his battle with cancer, Terry has honed in on four core truths which he shares to help you achieve the highest fulfillment in life. I was a SWAT team hostage negotiator for the Cincinnati, Ohio Police Department. Okay, so pretty big metropolitan <laughs> area. <laughs> and I bet you saw some incredible things, but I'd like to back up. What made you interested in that or how did you get into that career field? Yeah, you know, if, if you look at my resume, it, it kind of looks like I'm all over the place. You know, when I graduated from college, uh, I w was uh, in the marketing department with Wendy's International, the hamburger chain in their corporate headquarters. And then I went into hospital administration, and it wasn't until after that that I kind of made the pivot and became a police officer. And if you understand the backstory, my, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, was a Chicago, uh, Illinois police officer from 1924 to 1954, and was actually shot in the line of duty with his own gun, taking a homicide, a bank robbery suspect, back to the lockup. And my father always remembered the stories that my grandmother told of the knock on the door of, you know, Mrs. Tucker, grab your son, come with us. Your husband's been shot. I mean, and let's face it, trauma medicine in 1935 was a whole lot different than trauma medicine today. So when I expressed an interest in going into law enforcement, my dad was absolutely not. You're going to go to college. You're going to major in business. You're going to get out, get a great job, get married, have 2.4 kids and live happily ever after. And, but that's what my dad wanted me to do. That's not what I felt my passion or my purpose was. And so when I graduated from college, I, I had a decision to make. My dad was dying of cancer. So I could be like, you know what? Sorry, dad, I'm going to go blaze my own trail and be a, a police officer or out of love and respect for you, I will do what you want me to do and go into business. So you kind of understand now where my resume is. And I did. I went into business for my dad and I sort of joke. I did what every good son did. I waited till my father passed away and <laughs> followed my own dreams. And I was a 37-year-old rookie police officer, which by most accounts, people would say is kind of old to be getting into that line of work. 
that's the downside. The good side was I had some life experience that I brought to the job, you know, that I was able to talk to people of, of all different, you know, ethnicities, of all different backgrounds, of all different socioeconomic uh, situations. So that helped me be more successful in that. Long story short, the SWAT team had uh, an opening for a negotiator. And so I always wanted to be part of the best. SWAT on most Metropolitan Police Departments is the best. They get the best officers, they get the best training, they get the best equipment. And so when that opening happened, I put in for it. And as they say, the rest is history. <laughs> wow. I, I love what you said. You know, you were the good son. You did what your dad wanted you to do until he passed away. And then you followed your heart. I think that's interesting, though, because uh, actually my last conversation, we were talking about how important community is and how we're not uh, we're not people who are just alone. We don't make make decisions in a vacuum. And I think that's interesting because, you know, if you just wanted to do what you wanted to do, you'd go and follow your heart, do your own thing. But this is kind of a side note, but it might tie into what we're talking about later. What impacted your decision to do business, do what your dad wanted to do? And did you feel more or less fulfilled in that? Did you feel like you were just trapped? How was that feeling doing something for the family, more or less, you know, because it was kind of your dad's vision, because they had gone through that scare with the law enforcement they've gone through that trauma and so they they couldn't hand or he couldn't handle you in the line of duty you know because it probably brought back a lot of traumatic memories how was that for you yeah i i mean i was very fortunate you know my story is not you know i grew up in a dysfunctional family and stuff <laughs> i i didn't i i mean i'm the oldest of three boys you you can't tell this from looking at me but i'm i'm six foot eight inches tall and i played basketball in college you know, I have a brother who's six foot seven who was a pitcher for the University of Notre Dame. Another brother who's six foot six who was drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers and the National Basketball Association. And then my dad was six five. So I sort of joked that if you sat behind our family in church growing up, there wasn't a prayers change. We we're going to see anything that was going on. Parents really are, you know, they taught us the value of family and the importance of family and did what I used to call sort of the, the divide and conquer parenting. Uh, you know, it's like, Terry's got a game over, over here, dad's going to that, Larry's got a practice over here, mom's going to that. So we were always running in a million different directions, but our whole family was about loving each other, caring about each other, supporting each other in the different things that we did. So, you know, I mean, it really wasn't a hard decision for me. Was I fulfilled? No, not in the least. Uh, but it wasn't a hard decision because my dad and my mom, I, I, I loved them to death. I would do anything for them. I mean, I would have done that, you know, taking care of my dad for 50 years if that's what I needed to do because he and mom did that for us. Mm. And, and so when it came to the decision, it wasn't a fulfilling decision, but it wasn't a hard decision because my dad and my mom were always there for us. And now it was time for us to step up and be there for them. I love that answer. I And I don't know, you know, each person's, um, life is is individual, and I don't know if there's a right and wrong answer, but I love that answer um, that you gave because, you know, there's also the aspect that you do need to follow what you're what you're meant to be. I, I don't want to sound like oh you have a destiny, you have a you know what you're supposed to be doing, but we all have different different characteristics, different skills, different talents, and when you're doing what you love, then you're most fulfilled because you're actually living in your zone zone of genius, as it's sometimes called. So yeah, I love your answer. Just, I, I was curious about that. I do have one question though. How how tall is your mom? Five eight. 
Wow. Five, so you, <laughs> but I'm telling you, mom was the boss. Didn't matter how big, tall, strong we were, whatever mom said, that's the way it went. So, <laughs> Oh my goodness, that's crazy. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, yeah, so 37, you went into law enforcement. How long were you law enforcement before you went into the hostage negotiator? Um, About, I want to say, I'm going to say about four or five years, somewhere in that neighborhood. Okay. So during that during that time, did you get, what were the experiences like for you? Were, was it kind of, because like you said, you had life experience. So that's definitely a benefit when you're when you're on the street. I read a book. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself now. I was listening to a, an audio book with my brother several years ago now. And it was by a police officer who was talking about all about communication and how it's not taught to a lot of police officers. And of course, you know, you and I both know the experiences of the last couple of years, George Floyd and all of that, that mess has kind of highlighted some issues in the police force. We need the police force. Like it's, you know, incredible. And the bravery that these people live, you know, on a daily basis is an incredible. I have the highest respect for them. But, you know, people who have actually worked in there who care about the profession, care about the field, they have seen how the communication skills can be lacking and you know how the whole idea is come home with the same amount of holes as you left you know it's, it's all about um protect yourself and and not so much you know communicating and that's why i really am excited to talk to you because your whole job became communication but how was it working as a police officer just in the field showing up to random calls for those first couple of years how was that for you? Yeah, it was It was certainly a learning experience. I had some life experience, but I also, you become aware of situations. You, you have a, a feel for things. I, I, my, I, I ran a, a beat with a, with a partner and Cincinnati pretty much ran single person cars, but we were kind of the car that was sort of held out in reserve for, you know, the gun runs and the shootings and the stabbings and, you know, all the the ugly kind of things because we were a two-person car. And mm-hmm. I was lucky. I was I was really teamed with uh, a woman from my academy class who was also older when she got into the job. She had a master's degree uh, in, in counseling. And we always were, we, we led our relief in almost every category. Traffic tickets written, felony arrests, guns recovered, dope recovered, wanted people, all that kind of stuff that the department tracked. And we were two white people running an entirely black African-American beat. Hmm. And we never got complained on. And I think the reason we didn't was because we knew how to talk to people. Yeah. And, and I'll, give you, I'll give you two quick examples. Um, one night we were looking for a Ford Bronco, a white Ford Bronco. And an, another, uh, another officer had pulled over a car that it was a Ford Bronco. It was not the people we were looking for, but it had four black males in it. And it was a it was for a fairly violent crime. They had they'd committed a, a carjacking, but it was not the people we were looking for. And the driver just kept asking, why did you stop me? Why did you pull me over? And th- this was a young officer. And the officer was like, you know what? I don't need to tell you that. Just it's not you get out of here. And, and it was like, oh, my God, you idiot. Mm-hmm. Why are you not telling this person why you did what you did? And so my partner and I went up and said, look, here's why we saw you were stopped. Here's what we're looking for. You are not the person. Thank you very much for your cooperation. Have a safe night. You're free to go. And he was like, oh, oh, okay, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, just communicating why we did what we did. Did we have to? No. Was it smart to do it? Yes. Because you don't want to turn a yes person 
into a no person just because you're having a bad day. Mm. So that was one conversation. Another incident that happened, we had uh, in a different beat, but still in, in our district, they were chasing a car. Chase, it was a vehicle pursuit. We were second in the pursuit. The, the guy went down a cul-de-sac, a dead end, bailed from the car and took off. We, we didn't catch him, but we had the car. This was three o'clock in the morning. We park our car, we get out. There's a guy sitting on the porch and he's like, you hit my car. Excuse me, sir? The, those officers over there, they hit my car. I mean, we looked at his car. There was, there was not, it was pristine. There was not, no damage to it whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And so we went up to them and we were like, hey, this guy's saying you hit their car. Now, they got indignant. Like, we didn't hit his car. You know, that few choice words that, you know, I will not repeat on air. Call a boss. Bring, send a, bring a boss to the scene. Let the boss take a picture of the car. Let a boss interview this man. We don't need to do that. I'm like, you're right. You don't need to do that. Mm -hmm. But I'm telling you right now, when we leave here, this guy's going to go inside his house and he's going to take a hammer out and he's going to make his car look like you plowed into it. And the department and the city is going to get him a new car. Now, a way to stop that is to call boss. So either you do it or we do it, but it's your run. You decide how you want to handle it. Again, why don't you just do the easy thing? Why are we making this so difficult? Mm -hmm. Just call a boss. Boss will talk to him, take pictures of the car. If the guy makes a claim, it's like, no, we investigated. He's lying. We have pictures. Yeah. Like, why would you not take yourself out of the jackpot <laughs> before you even get into it? But th again, that's communication. That's maturity. That's younger officers who don't want to or somehow think this is an affront to their character. Mm -hmm. It's not. The guy's a liar. You know he's a liar. Just prove that he is so that you don't get in trouble. Yeah, exactly. And it's not diminishing your ego in order to do that. Because I think that's another another thing that gets in the way people's egos. And they're like, well, and, and I say this, I'm not an officer. I don't have any law enforcement experience. But, you know, I've dealt with uh, a couple traffic speeding stops. And sometimes there are the really nice officers that come up and they're like, you know, you're going 10 miles an hour over the speed limit, whatever. And I was oh, man, you do your interaction it's, it's great. But then you have some who come up and you can just tell they're on a power trip. And that's, that's where, and I'm saying this from a citizen's perspective, you know, it just elicits so much, yeah, just helplessness. And I really want to get into your amazing stories. But it's interesting to hear you talk about that. And I think it's good to be aware of. And for somebody who's interested in, in a career in law enforcement, some things that they can do to help prepare themselves and some things that they should be aware of before they go into that career. Speaking of which, if you were talking to somebody, if our listener was thinking about in a, a career in law enforcement, what would be some things you'd say to them as they consider? I'd say a couple of things. First of all, if you really want to do this job and you want to be successful at this job, put your devices down. Hmm. Go out and talk to the homeless guy on the corner. Go up to the penthouse and talk to that person. Because if you can talk to those different demographics, those different sort of, you know, fringes of society, you'll be successful at this job. You can't text your way through an investigation. Sorry, you know, you need to talk to people. You need to understand what people are lying to you or trying to lie to you or trying to manipulate the situation. So that's, that's the first thing I'd have to say because yeah, I think you hit on it. Being successful in anything you do in life involves uh, adequate or appropriate communication. And if you don't have that, you're not gonna be successful and you're gonna be frustrated. The second thing I would say to those, per, to those people is this. Think about this job in this regard. You make, what, whatever job you're doing right now, if you made less money than a plumber, 
every nobody wanted you there and everybody lied to you, how long would you would you continue to do that job? And most people would be like, I wouldn't even get into that field. But that's what law enforcement is. You make less money than a plumber. When you get to the scene, nobody wants you there. I mean, like you said, you're either pulling somebody over for, you know, speeding or you're answering a radio run to somebody's house for a domestic or you're knocking on the door saying, call the hospital, grandmother died and they can't get a hold of you. Nobody wants the cops there. So that's the second thing. And then everybody lies to you. Everybody lies to you. Everybody's trying to get their story to be the one you believe. So you take the other person to jail. So if that was your job every day, would you want to go to that job? Would you want to do that job unless you had a calling, unless you wanted to serve in some fashion? I don't think most people would. So think about that before you get into it, because nobody likes you. Nobody wants you around and people are going to call you all kinds of names. And if that offends you. And the other thing, I guess, and you hit on it a minute ago, the power trip. You know, when I pulled somebody over in a car, I had to remember that for them, this may be the most scary, frightening, nervous thing that's ever happened, that, that happened to them all year. For me, it's the third traffic stop in the night. You have to keep that in, in, in perspective and understand that people are scared. I mean, when those red and blue lights go off, even I, you know, would be like, I know I'm not going to get a ticket because I'm a cop. It's just kind of one of those things. You're not, nothing's going to happen to you, but you still get that feeling in the pit of your stomach. So you have to understand that you got to treat people like, yeah, I understand this is scary. And you got to be nice. Be nice until it's time not to be nice. Mm-hmm. You know, why do you have to start off being a jerk? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so, so true. And I think it's funny because I can relate to you in the fact that I'm a nurse and I used to work mm-hmm. in the ER. Now I work in the ICU. So for the most part, my patients are asleep. Um, but in the <laughs> ER, you deal with all sorts of people and you can either start off on the right foot or start off on the wrong foot. And if you start off like in an aggressive, I'm the nurse, you're here to get help. I'm going to help you, but you have to do what I say. Then it's going to take you a long time to gain that credit back because again, it very similar. It's funny that hearing you talk, you know, I think about all the all the experiences I've been through. They come into the ER, they're scared, they don't want to be there. And then just a, a little bit of, you know, I don't know, just humanness, you know, yeah. Um, humanity. Yeah, humanity, smiling at them, asking, you know, how they're doing, just breaking that barrier down helps them feel relaxed, and they're able to communicate effectively. And then you can have a good experience together. So that is so true and and so important so you became a hostage negotiator was there any extra training that you had to go through to do that how did how does one become a hostage negotiator i assume from what we've already pretty much the same yeah you you have to be a cop yeah (laughs) yeah yeah so you know swat is divided up into two teams the the negotiators and the tactical team and the tactical team are the are the men and the women who you know surround the house, have all the big guns and the toys and all that kind of stuff. The negotiators are the smart ones. They're the ones usually in the mobile home with the bathroom and the drinks and the food and all that kind of stuff. It really wasn't a hard decision when it came to which side do I want to be on. And, and, I, and I'm joking, obviously, but <laughs> in a lot of ways, that was it. And, and the negotiator's job is basically to you know, to try to diffuse the situation so you don't have to use the men and women with the guns and the toys and all that kind of stuff. So it was really a process. There was a physical fitness test. There was a psychological test. 
There was a meeting with the psychologist, the police psychologist. There were people would talk to your former bosses. They would talk to your family and all that kind of stuff. And then they made a decision. Yes, we want to bring you on or no, we don't. And we trained with a psychologist and our training was basically scenario based. We would, well, let's try this. Let's, you know, and you act as the hostage, you as, as the hostage taker, I'll be the negotiator. And I, and I will never forget this. When I first started, it was this very simple thing. There was a hostage uh, and a hostage taker behind a locked door and I was negotiating. And the hostage the whole time was, it, it was a guy, but he was pretending to be a woman, you know, and it was like, help me, help me. You know, he had this really funny voice and all that kind of stuff. And I spent the entire time talking to the hostage. Mm. And, and I totally took the hostage taker out of the equation. And what I learned is, and, and, that, and it's a hard thing to do, is you, you have to do just the opposite. You have to forget about the hostage, unless you can use it to your advantage in some way. Yeah. But you have to focus on the, on the hostage taker. What do they want? What are their demands? What's your name? What do you want me to call you? Things like that. And leave the hostage out of it because it's a relationship between the two of you and the hostage is just sort of a, you know, it's, it's no different than a barricaded person. I don't have a hostage. I just barricaded myself with a gun in here and I don't want to come out. Well, again, you're just talking to that person. There is no hostage in that case. So it, it was, I totally messed up the first time. But again, that was, that's kind of how we trained. And the hostage doesn't have any power, you know. So talking to them is kind of pointless in this really critical situation because they can't do anything. That's why they're the hostage. Besides for making sure that they know that you're there to help, that's all you can do with them. And you need to focus on the hostage taker in order to get them out of that situation. Exactly. I'm curious. So your first, do you remember your first ever um, actual hostage negotiation? Um or was it kind of like a blur lead up? It, it really, you know, it, it's funny. There was a movie that came out in, in in the 1990s. It was called The Negotiator. And it starred Samuel L. Jackson as this police hostage negotiator. And the guy was like Superman. You know, he did like everything. And so when I talk about this, a lot of times people who have seen that movie are like, well, is that the way it was? I'm like, no, that's not the way it was. The way it, wo- it works is... It's like so many other things, like it's a team effort. So mm-hmm. yes, there is one person that is negotiating with, with the hostage taker or the barricaded person. And then there's another negotiator sitting right next to them, listening to everything that's going on. Not saying anything, but listening. And then there are three or four negotiators that are sort of what I used to call work in the crowd. They may be talking to the person's mother. Why are we here? What happened? What led up to this? Has he had any mental problems? Has he been, is he, does he see a psychiatrist or a psychologist? You know, all kinds of questions. So you may be negotiating with this person. All of a sudden, you'll get a note from the person next to you that says, don't talk about his mother. Oh, okay. Because the crowd, people in the crowd said that he was, he had a fight with his mother and that's what led him, you know, to barricade himself with a gun. Oh. Good. Well, that's good information to know because a lot of times you want to play on family. You know, hey, who do you love the most? I mean, your mom. Come on, you, you need to come. Your mom really would would she she would have a hard time if something happened to you and so. But it, if the fight was about with the mother and that's why they're just there, you want to take the mother yeah. out of the equation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so that's kind of how it worked, and that's kind of how we did what we did, and and then you're 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 kind of negotiating with each other. There was a time. I'll never forget a 15-year-old kid had barricaded himself uh, in this abandoned house with a gun. And we had tried everything to get him out. And we didn't know what to do. So I, you know, I, I don't think I was talking, I think I was the secondary. 
And we're like, hey, we'll call you back. And so we hung up. We all got together. We're like, I don't, I, you know, what do we do? I, and we're talking. And finally, one of the older guys was like, he's 15 years old. Let's scare him. Let's, let's be a parent. So we're, we devised a plan. The, the tactical people are going to break a window and throw in a flashbang grenade, which it, it doesn't explode like a normal grenade. It basically produces a, a bright light and a very loud sound. Mm -hmm. And we're like, well, let's scare him and see if maybe that'll work. And we did. We had the tactical team break the win. Within 10 minutes, the kid was out. You know, so it was sometimes you got to be a parent. You know, sometimes you got to be a spouse. Sometimes you got to act like a boss. I, I mean, you you really have to put on different hats depending on how the situation progresses. I can imagine it's hard. How long did you work as a hostage negotiator? Almost four years. Okay. So by the by the end of it, did you look back at the beginning and be like, wow, there was so much I had to learn? Could, was it a pretty marked, yeah, I can only imagine. And that's also interesting what you were saying, because I guess in my mind, it was it was the same. I, I haven't watched that movie, but I thought there was like one negotiator. And then, of course, you had the, the flashbang team, the people who go in. And that's interesting that there's a whole group of you who is kind of bringing your expertise and experience and, and ideas to the table as you're talking to the hostage uh, taker. And like you said, with a 15 year old, you don't always, you didn't always talk with hostage takers, sometimes just people by themselves. Is that correct? Yeah. A lot of times, it, it, more often than not, it was a barricaded person. It could have been you robbed a bank and you got, you know, caught and you got chased and you went into a house and, you know, you barricaded yourself or something like that. So it could have been something like that. Or it just could have been, like I said, as simple as I had a fight with my mom. I'm pissed off. I got a gun. I'm not coming out. Mm -hmm. And the family has done everything they can do. And now it's, well, maybe we ought to call the police and see what they can do. Because, I mean, we can obviously always go in and interdict the situation, but we don't want to do that. I mean, we'll give it as much time as we can till we think this isn't working anymore. And then it's time to the boys with their toys and, you know, you do your thing. That was rare. And about 90% of the time... We were successful of getting people out safely, but 10% of the time it ended with usually the person taking their own life. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think we ever had to intervene where we had to shoot somebody, um, but you know they would go in and or they would hear a gunshot or and I, I can tell you some stories about that where people would actually you know it's like no I'm not and people would ask us it's like you know well if I come out um, do I have to go to jail and and we haven't gotten to this yet, but a big part of this is like any relationship, husband, wife, doctor, nurse, teacher, parent, whatever it is, it, you're developing a relationship. Mm -hmm. And so you, we never lied to people. People would say, I'll come out, but I'm, you got to promise me I'm not going to jail. Well, sorry, when you come out, you are going to go to jail. But then we would try to deflect the conversation to something more positive because it, there was a very good chance a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, that we'd be right back negotiating with this same person, you know, on maybe the same issue, maybe on something mm. different. Mm -hmm. And if they ever felt we lied to them, if we ever lost that trust, then then we would have to bring in another negotiator. It's like, you know, Tucker, I remember you from two years ago and you, you said this and that was a lie. And uh, I mean, my credibility's done. I'm gone. You're going to have to bring in another negotiator because it doesn't matter how much rapport I try to build with him, he's always going to have in the back of his mind, you lied to me before, you're going to lie to me again. So trust was a huge issue with something we had to develop with that person. And part of that, and this is where emotionally difficult, 
was a lot of times you had to get out in the weeds with these people. If, if I'm negotiating with you and you're yelling and screaming and you know, you're, you're just, you're, you're gone. And I say something like, you seem like you're a little mad. I've totally missed what's going on here. I've totally failed to identify the emotion that he's, that he's protruding. It's like, oh, yeah, man, you just are just pissed as hell. That's getting down in the weeds with those people. That's like, oh, I've identified that emotion that, you, that you're, oh, yeah, Tucker gets me now. Yeah, he understands where I'm coming from. If you misidentify the emotion, mm, it's going to take a little time to develop that um, rapport again because they're like, you know, Tucker, you're an idiot. You don't know what I'm talking about, you know, so... Just different ways of looking at it. Yeah, and just acknowledging their emotion. And so you were kind of like a parent to everybody, just having to talk it through. How was that on a personal level? Like you mentioned, you really had to get into the weeds, get you didn't lie, which I think is so important because, yeah, you come back and, and you've just lost all that trust. And why lie to people? This is something that I, I wanted to cover as well. Do you want to keep them safe or... or Basically, do you want them to come out of the house or do you want to keep them safe in the long run? Because if you want them to come out of the house, you're going to tell them anything to get them out of the house. But if you want to keep them safe in the long run, you're going to be honest with them. And even if it takes a little longer to come out of the house, you know, you're still going to be honest and upfront because it might affect your relationship later on. We're not going to just tell them anything to get them out. That, that's definitely, we want them out. I think a goal of any interaction with a citizen is voluntary compliance. We would like you to do what we ask you to do and then we'll sort it out afterwards. But again, you know, it's your choice. I mean, I, I, I always looked at it like, yeah, 90% of the time I'm getting the person out, 10% of the time the person is deciding, making the decision to kill themselves, to, to end their life. And while I felt that was always tragic, the way I looked at it is you're asking me, a total stranger, to come into a situation that one is dynamic and two very well may have been festering for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and it comes to a head on this day. And now I'm supposed to come in in two hours, four hours, eight hours, whatever it ends up being, and we'll take whatever time it, we need to resolve this situation. That's not realistic. I mean, that it's just we do the best we can with what we have. But it's just not realistic. And while I always felt it was tragic that somebody ended their life, it was their decision. And again, I did the best I could with the best training and the best people to try to end it safely. But again, it's in all honesty, you're in control of how this ends. Yeah, I can send in a bunch of people with big guns and end it that way. But that's not what I want to do. I would like you to come to come out. And, and the way I guess it's kind of an easy, easier way to think about what we do. We've all been to the park when we were young and been on a teeter-totter or a seesaw kind of thing. When we start negotiating with somebody, their emotional end is way up in the air and their rational side is way, way down on the ground. So the first two, three, maybe even four hours, we're not even talking about coming out. We're not, that, that's not even something we're even, we don't even mention it. Because what we want to do is hopefully by asking open-ended questions, where they talk and burn off a lot of that emotional energy that that, that teeter-totter, that seesaw comes to equilibrium. And then hopefully over more time that their rational end is up in the air and their emotional end is down on the ground because we all make better decisions when we use our rational brain as opposed to our emotional brain. So when we can get to the point where they're thinking rationally, 
now's the time to talk about putting the gun down and coming out and stuff like that. So there could be hours that go by where you're over here talking about whatever, and the real problem is over here, and you haven't even gotten to that yet. But you're developing a relationship. You're getting to burn off a lot of that emotional energy. You're doing all kinds of things are going on that everybody thinks, well, just tell them to come out. No, that's not the time to tell them. To we know what we're doing. We're good at what we do. Just shut up and leave us alone and we'll get there. But it, it, it really is kind of that you're sort of going back and forth with the emotional brain, the rational brain, the rational brain, the emotional brain. And when you can get the person thinking rationally, then you're probably going to have a better success rate of getting them to put the gun down and come out as opposed to they're yelling and screaming and they're hyped up and everything like that. That's not the time. I mean, they're just going to tell you to go stick it. It's like, no, they don't want to come out. They want to be heard. And then once they've been heard and once they're done with that, okay, now, hmm, now I'm tired. I mean, think about it. When you're emotional, you're keyed up. You're, eventually your body gets tired. Okay, you calm down a little bit. You're relaxed. Now's the time when that rational brain starts to kick in. Now's the time we can start talking about putting the gun down. And the other thing is we never gave something without getting something. So somebody would be like, give me a pizza. What are you going to give me? What do you mean? Well, give me something. I'm not giving you a pizza unless you're going to give me something. What are you going to give me? It's like, and again, that's developing trust. Am I going to give you a pizza? Sure. Give me a magazine out of your gun. Give me your gun. Give me whatever. What can I get from you? Give me a cigarette. Give me a bullet. Things like that. So, I mean, and if, if they got the cigarette, oh, okay, Tucker said I could have a cigarette. He gave me the cigarette. Hmm, okay, trust. We're developing that relationship. We're, we're getting to that point where now the rational brain's kicked in. Now we can start talking. Hey, look, John, look, just put the gun down. It's been a long night. You're tired. I'm tired. What do you think? I mean, don't you want to see your wife, kids, mother, whoever it is. They'd like to see you. Well, if I come out, can I talk to you? Yeah, I'll, I'll come down to the scene. We'll talk face to face like men. You kind of play on that. You're a man, I'm a man. Let's talk face to face. Let's look each other in the eye and things like that. You know, whatever you can glean, you can pick up on. But the thing, the thing that you got to understand is there were times we went into negotiations, we had no idea why we were there. The people working the crowd for us, I don't know. Nobody seems to know why he did this. Nobody, I mean, there wasn't a fight. His family has no idea. He just snapped. So we have no idea. Hmm. And that's, that gets hard. That's like, well, pick a rabbit hole. Let's go down it and see where he goes. And if it's the wrong rabbit hole, they'll yell at you. No, Tucker, you're an idiot. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay, totally missed it. Come out of that rabbit hole. Let's pick another one. Yeah. I think that's interesting. You, you've mentioned, well, first of all, so how would you give somebody like a cigarette? How, how did that happen? Because I assume this is firsthand experience. You, you did that a couple times. Yeah, it's not all gloom and doom. Sometimes they're funny. <laughs> um, a, a quick, quick funny story. So I happen to be working that Again, uh, full disclosure, we were not a full-time SWAT team. Okay. We, we carried pagers. And so, again, I'm really dating myself. We carried pagers. And when the pager went off, you went to wherever the scene told you on the pager. So I was working this particular night. So I was in a marked car. I was in uniform. And I got there fairly quickly. And I'm talking to the district guys. I'm like, what's the deal? He's drunk. He took a gun. He's got his wife barricaded in the house. Okay. Do you have him on the phone? Yeah, I do. Let me talk to him. So we started talking. We talked for about 10 minutes. And I just had a feeling, and again, I, this is totally opposite of everything I just told you, where you don't ask up front for the person to come out. But I just had a feeling with this guy. And I said to him, 
what would it take for you to come out? There was this long kind of pregnant pause on the other end and he's like, give me a beer. If I gave you a beer, do I have your word you would come out? He's like, do I have your word I can drink it? And I said, yeah. I said, do I have your word you'll come out? He said, yeah, you have my word. So I gave $5 to one of the district guys to get out of the store, buy a beer. And the tactical team, so the, the men and the women, you know, who have the guns and they have body armor, they have shields, they have ballistic blankets that they can put up on a wall so that if somebody shoots through the wall, it'll be stopped. They have all kinds of, of toys. They, they put two or three of them, had a shield in front of them, went up, put the, the beer on the front porch, and then backed off. And then I called them back and I said, hey, your beer's on the front porch, but you don't get it until your wife comes out, you put the gun down, and you come out with your hands out. He's like, do I still have your word that I can drink the beer? I said, you absolutely have my word. So all of a sudden, the front door flies open. Here comes his wife. Here he comes with his hands up. They handcuff him. He drinks the beer. Off to jail he goes. Oh my goodness. That is hilarious. <laughs> you just never know until you try. Like, And that worked for him. Which I think is interesting because when you were talking about the rational and emotional brain, you weren't dealing with serial killers. Like when you watch these what when you watch these movies, serial killers are very cold, calculated. They know what they want. They kill people. They don't care. But I feel like what you were dealing with were people who were just emotionally in too deep. They were out of control. That's kind of an assumption. Is that correct? No. So we we did deal with homicide suspects. I mean, there were times where somebody get a tip, "Hey, there's this guy's wanted for this homicide. He's in this building." We would assemble as a SWAT team, literally. We, we had what, it was called the bear. It was like an armored car. We would pull it up to your front porch. We would totally ruin your lawn, pull it up on the front porch, and we would talk to you over a loudspeaker. John Smith, we know you're inside, come out. And, and now you're trying to negotiate with somebody, one, who's trapped, and two, who knows that more than likely he did commit this homicide and he's going away for the rest of his life. So he's got nothing to lose. Hmm. Absolutely nothing to lose. Those are incredibly hard. And a lot of times those are the people that off themselves decide that they're going to commit suicide. I'm not going back to jail. I'm not spending the rest of my life in an eight by 10 foot cell. I'm not doing that. I'm going to end my life and, and be done with it. Again, tragic because you, anybody, anytime somebody dies, I don't care if you're a serial killer, I don't care if you're a murderer, I don't care if you're a bank robber, somebody somewhere loves you. Somebody somewhere cares about you and want, and, and that's another thing you kind of got to keep in, in. I mean, you got to do your job. You got to do what you got to do, but you've got to remember that this is a human being. This just yeah. isn't a piece of meat that we're trying to capture. So yeah, we dealt with homicide suspects all the time where they were barricaded or holed up somewhere and we were trying to find them. We got a tip and we would go there. Sometimes they weren't there. Sometimes mm -hmm. you're over the PA system and you're trying to get them to pick up the phone for two hours. You know how frustrating that is to try to, hey, come on, John, pick up the phone. We want to talk. And you're saying that for two hours. You sound like an idiot after about, you know, 15 minutes. You, you feel like, oh, my God, how long is it? But you would do it for hours on the hope that they would. And a lot of times the tactile team would go in. There wouldn't be anybody there. Sometimes they'd be there and they'd be dead. Sometimes they, I mean, we gassed this one place. Uh, we, we put in a bunch of, of CS gas mm -hmm. into, into the, an apartment. And it was bad. I mean, people like blocks away were like, oh my God, you know, and they're sneezing and snotting and all that kind of stuff. And the tactical team went in and the guy was laying face down on the sofa with his face into the cushion. So he wasn't affected by the gas, but he was, he was still alive. They got him that way. So, I mean, you deal with all different kinds of things. Oh my goodness. 
Is there is there one experience that stands out to you in any particular way? Yeah, there is. There there was a kind of a kind of a weird situation, but also kind of one where if you believe in God and I do, that we're not in control of this. This is a lot of times way above our pay grade. So this this started about eight nine o'clock in the evening. This this person wanted to commit suicide, so he slit his wrists. Well, that didn't work. And for some reason, he thought it was a good idea to turn on the gas in his oven and stick his head in the oven. Well, that didn't work either. So now he's got a gun, and he called a family member. And the family member was smart enough, kind enough, whatever, to call the police. So we've got the place surrounded. I am talking to him on the phone. It's probably now 4 o'clock in the morning. And I, I think he was just exhausted. He was just tired. And we had developed a good relationship and I said, why don't you just put the gun down and come out? I said, look, I'll come down to the scene. We'll talk face to face. We'll get this resolved. Everything's going to be okay. Yeah, I'd like to do that. I'd really like to do that. I said, well, then put the gun down. I said, bring the phone with you, but put the gun down. I said, don't hang up. Okay, well, what's he doing? He hangs up the phone. So, but that's, that's not uncommon. We're conditioned to do that when a call is over or coming, you know, something's over. So we didn't think much of it. About 15 seconds later, one of the tactical officers comes over the radio and is like, we heard a gunshot. And I thought, oh my God, you didn't. He did. Shot himself in the head. But shot himself at such an angle that the bullet went in, shot himself in the temple, went in underneath the skin in his temple, went around his skull and came out the other side. I mean, bloody as heck because it was a head wound, but it never penetrated his skull, never got to his brain. So three times... This guy tried to kill himself that night. Three times God was like, nope, don't think so. Don't want you right now. You stay there for a while. But Goodness. yeah, that was one that I thought, oh my gosh, this guy finally did it. You know, he finally worked up the courage to pull the trigger. Yeah. And he did. It was not. And I'm sure when he woke up in the hospital, it was like, are you serious? Is this heaven? No, no, it's the ER. Sorry. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's crazy. And yeah. it, it's just... That it just blows me away. Stories like that, not to mention that whole experience, which is crazy. Those close range gunshot wounds where it actually doesn't penetrate the skull. And you're just like, wow, our, our bones are so incredibly strong. That oh, is yeah. amazing. Yeah. Wow. So through, through your work as a hostage negotiator, you learned a ton about communication and working with people, but you've also created a, a company, and I'd like to talk about that before we end this conversation. I, I just realized it's been almost an hour, and the time is flying by. But you created Motivational Check. What is kind of the story behind that? Yeah, Motivational Check was, um, I've had cancer for the last 10 years, and that's that's caused me to have my foot amputated. It caused me to have my leg amputated in 2020. You sort of get to a point where it's like, oh, okay, like what next, God? And you're looking at the ceiling, and there's that old joke that when we talk to God, it's called prayer. When God talks to us, it's called schizophrenia. A guy that has never, you know, and, and as a nurse, I'm sure you understand, yep. you know, <laughs> that, but... You get to a point where it's like, well, what should I do? And, and I don't think God talks to us. And I mean, maybe he does to some people. He doesn't to me. But I think what God does is put people in our path that make suggestions. Hey, you should write a book. Hey, you should write a book. Hey, you should write a book. And, and some people were like, hey, you should start a blog. You should, you know, and I'm like, start a blog. I'm 61 years old. I can barely turn my cell phone on in the morning. What do you mean start a blog? And more people started to recommend that. And I'm smart enough, I think, that when more people do that, I should buck up and be like, well, maybe I ought to pay attention to this. 
So I, I started this, this blog called Motivational Check. Literally, it was four pages when I started. Took me four months to do it, and, and that's not a lie. I, I, I had no idea what I was doing. Well, a blog, I, don't, I can't even spell blog. I don't know how to do this. So I, I had to learn, I had to go through the process. I'm sure my 26-year-old daughter could have done it in about 15 minutes, but literally took me four months. And when I, it, it's, a, it's a motivational type of, of the, I put up a thought for the day every day. And with that thought kind of comes a question about maybe how you can apply that in your life. On Mondays, I put up the Monday morning motivational message, which is a, a video or a story that I found that, you know, is a little bit longer, but has more impact, I think. And so I was looking for a title. What do I call this thing? And when I was in the police academy, our defensive tactics instructor gave us the class this saying, motivational check. So when you were at the end of your rope, you were tired, you couldn't go on, you were hurting, whatever, you could just scream out motivational check and the rest of us would respond with a, a, an 84. We were the 84th recruit class in, in the Cincinnati Police Academy just to let that person know that, hey, you're not alone. We're all hurting, but we're all in this together and we'll get through it together. So I just thought my motivational check seems like a good title, uh, you know, to, for, for this kind of a blog. And that was back in 2019. And so far it's stuck and seems to be working. Wow. I love it. So what is the mission behind it just to share with a blog or has it expanded to anything else? Yeah. It, I mean, it started out just with thoughts for the day. And now it's, uh, I've been fortunate enough to be a guest on probably almost 500 podcasts around the world where I talk about you know, motivation and the need to keep moving forward. Sometimes we talk about hostage negotiation and stuff <laughs> like that, which is always a lot of fun for me as well. And then I ended up writing a book when I had my leg amputated while I was healing and things like that. And so now there's all the podcasts I've been on are on there. The thoughts for the day are still there. The Monday morning motivational message. There's recommendations for books, recommendations for videos and things like that. And, and I'm getting ready in a couple of weeks. We're going, we're going live with a, with a membership program that is more based on my book in terms of it delves down a little bit deeper into motivation and how you can live an uncommon and extraordinary life, which is really kind of the the overarching umbrella of Motivational Check the Blog and my book, Sustainable Excellence. I love that. And speaking of, I'd just like to wrap up this conversation. I want you to talk about um, the four truths that you use to help others lead an uncommon and extraordinary life. I I loved those in the write-up that you sent. Could we talk about that for a little bit as we wrap this up? Sure. The four truths are just things that I've come to understand mostly over my last 10 years with cancer. They're really kind of a, a conglomerate of my entire life, things that I've experienced, whether it's law enforcement or, or you know, athletics or, or things like that. And they're, they're very simple. I have them actually on a post-it note right here in my office. So I see them multiple times during the day. They're, they're all one sentence each. So the first one is control your mind or your mind is going to control you. And I learned that one early in life. When I was 15, I had a couple knee surgeries and I was a pretty good basketball player. And I remember when I went back playing basketball, my brain was putting all kinds of negative thoughts into my mind. You know, things like, hey, you're probably a step slower since these operations and college coaches aren't going to be interested in recruiting you. And I remember thinking, no, wait a minute, I'm still playing at an elite level and coaches are still reaching out about the possibility of having a scholarship 
to their college or university, I realized I had to change the narrative. I had to flip the switch to something that was, that was more positive. So that's kind of that one in a nutshell. The second one is embrace the pain and the difficulty that we all experience in life and use that pain and difficulty to make you a stronger and more resilient individual. And I guess the way that works for me is pain is inevitable in our lives. And it doesn't have to be cancer pain or even any kind of an illness. You could break up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or not get the promotion at work that you think you deserve or have a fender bender on the way to church. Whatever it is, we're all going to experience pain. Pain is inevitable. Suffering, on the other hand, suffering's optional. Suffering's what you do with that pain. Do you use it to make you a stronger and more resolute individual? Or do you wallow in it and feel sorry for yourselves and want other people to feel sorry for you? Our brains are hardwired to avoid pain and discomfort and to seek pleasure. And I guess what I'm suggesting with that thought is that instead of running from pain, take that pain, flip it inside, burn it as fuel, use it as energy to make you a stronger and more determined individual. So that's the second one. The third one is, I guess, more of a legacy truth. I think it's important for all of us, regardless of what stage of life we're in, to sort of think about the end game. What do you want people to say about your, your funeral? What will people say about you at your funeral? And the third one is this, what you leave behind is what you weave in the hearts of other people. And it, it's interesting, when I had my leg amputated and I found out I had the tumors in my lungs, I went with my wife to the mortuary, the cemetery, and the church, and I planned my funeral. And because I give talks in person and I'm on all these podcasts, I got some brushback from people that somehow were like, well, don't you think planning your funeral is some way defeatist? And I kind of looked at them like, well, the last time I checked, we're all gonna die. I don't think anybody's working on a cure for life right now. Everybody dies, but not everybody really lives. And I'll end this one with, with this quote that I heard. It's a Native American Blackfoot proverb that I heard years ago. And it goes like this, when you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a way so that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. That's what I want. That's what I'm looking for. So that's number three. And then number four is as long as you don't quit, you can never be defeated. And I think that's pretty self-explanatory, but the way that resonates with me is this. Someday my pain is going to end. Man through surgery, man through some new kind of medication, quite frankly, man when I die. But if I quit, if I give up, if I give in to pain, then pain will always be a part of my life. So those are the four truths. Thank you for visiting the Curiosity Shire and listening to today's conversation. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with a friend so they can be a part of this community as well. This episode was edited by Jeff Parker, with music by John Bentley and Grand Mercy. And I'm your host, Seth Sutherland, wishing you all the best until we see you again here in the Curiosity Shire.